You've heard me talk about Morning Kick, used by former karate champion Chuck Norris. It's a daily drink from Roundhouse Provisions that combines ultra-potent greens like spirulina and kale with probiotics, prebiotics, collagen, and even ashwagandha. Just mix with water, stir, and enjoy. Unlike other green drinks out there, this one tastes similar to strawberry lemonade, and I enjoy it. I know I don't eat as many vegetables as I should, but Morning Kick has helped me make up for that, and I feel great. I have more energy and better digestion. It's an easy part of my morning routine. My wife started taking it as well. Go to roundhouseprovisions.com forward slash Harris for up to 44% off your regular priced order. Plus, every purchase is backed by a 90-day money-back guarantee. So if you want to experience smoother digestion, a boost of energy, and just an overall healthier body, then go to roundhouseprovisions.com forward slash Harris today. And we are live on the Conversations That Matter podcast. I hope everyone can hear me all right. Uh, it is Thursday. Hard to believe it's Thursday. Weeks where there's holidays. It just seemed to go so fast. It's because it's not just the holiday. It's the day before. It's the day after you're preparing, you're recovering. Uh, we had a good time, though, uh, at my house. Um, trying to even remember what I did now. I, I actually smoked a bunch of ribs, which was nice. Uh, I really like smoking ribs. I, I just got into that and I've only smoked ribs so far. Pork ribs. I don't I can't afford the beef. I really want to. And I have some mesquite, which apparently would go well with that and pecan wood. But um, but I, I just can't afford it right now. Beef is so expensive. Uh, but there were some really good pork ribs. And uh, I'm I'm really excited about that uh, as the because the summer's just started. So, you know, there's a lot more smoking to do. Um, when I tell people, sometimes they they have to do a double take and they're like, you're, you're smoking. And I'm like, no, 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 no. <laughs> smoking meat, smoking meat. Not not that, uh, you know, the other kind of smoking, if it's pipes or cigars, especially is necessarily bad on occasion. Um but uh, in fact, uh, I have a friend who I'm, I've invited the, to the podcast. He actually agreed to come on. We just haven't figured out a time yet. Alan Harrelson. Uh, and uh, Alan uh, runs a, I don't know why I'm talking about this right now, but I might as well. He runs an outfit called The Pipe Cottage. And they have a podcast and a social media platform. And it's all about smoking pipes. Now, I don't have a pipe. I've never smoked a pipe. Uh, but it is, it's actually quite interesting. Because <laughs> he, he he'll talk on his podcast about the different kinds of pipes that different writers and thinkers throughout time have used, and I don't know. I just I'm finding it interesting for some odd reason. That that's a very new thing for me. Um, but anyway, so yeah, yeah, maybe one of these days we'll have an episode on pipes. Um, but uh, I, I want to talk today about something a, a little more uh, important. This is conversations that matter, right? So we're going to talk about things that matter. Um, and I want to start if I can here, let's just start with this. This is a tweet that I put out there the other day. Um, and uh, it's it's getting a little bit of heat right now, actually, which is funny to me. But it uh, all I said was this. In the reformed camp, we suffer from inadequate critiques of social justice that were ecclesiocentric and ignored the order amores. Doing justice is not part of the gospel, but it is part of loving neighbor, which extends to our natural relationships. We should prefer kin and country. And of course, uh, I'm not going to be talking about this so much. Uh, the second part is the part that I guess someone took an issue with, uh, saying that we should prefer kin and country and wants to make me out like I'm a kinist or something like that. My understanding, and, and I, don't, I don't know what the definition is because there's like 20 definitions of kinist, but my understanding was it had something to do with opposing interracial marriage or something like that. Um, and of course, I, I mean, I have, I, I have in-laws who are both Jewish and Dominican, and I don't know, I don't really... I don't, that's not me. Um, but th that's what I thought a kinis was. It was on that spectrum somewhere. But apparently if you just say something like we should prefer kin and country, uh, that makes you a kinis, which, which is crazy because that means that just about every Christian is certainly before world war two, but I think even post world war two by a few decades, just about every Christian thinker would have agreed with this statement. It was a no brainer. Uh, it was, of course, you should prefer your own. Of course, your family and the people that are part of your country, the people you share a community with, it, really the principle is proximity. The people that are approximate to you, you have more responsibility toward. That's why the Good Samaritan is, is someone uh, that you had responsibility toward because they were on the road. They were on the road you were taking. You, they were part of your neighborhood. Um, you have a responsibility to clean up your neighborhood uh, or to keep it clean as much as you possibly can. So anyway, 
Um, I, not very controversial, but apparently, uh, or shouldn't be, but apparently uh, that is becoming controversial now. But uh, the first part of this is actually the part that I want to talk about today um, because it confused a few people. Uh, and I understood it probably would when I put it there. I, I mean, I'm, I'm kind of trying to find a word for this, and I've just landed on ecclesiocentric. I'm, there may be someone who's thought of this before who has another word, and if so, please put it in the comments. Uh, but um, I, 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 this, this is broadly speaking what I was talking about here. There are critiques of social justice coming from Christians, in the, and I'm talking about the Reformed camp specifically, and I could name names. I don't really want to. I don't think that's the point. I really This is for learning. This is for... Uh, just just let's be conceptual for a minute about it. And if you can't think of anyone who fits this description, just be hypothetical with me. Um, there there were people in the reformed camp who started saying things like social justice uh, is not the gospel. And they're right about that. It's not. And that was one of the conflations that uh, many on the more social justice side were and still are uh, were, were making. They were saying that it's part of the gospel, that uh, you have to. Um, fulfill the law. In fact, uh, I have some classic examples of this uh, in my book. And um, and, and you can go and, and, and check it out. Uh, Christianity and Social Justice, Religions and Conflict. I talk about this quite a bit. Uh, people like Walter Strickland's one example who, uh, and he, he keeps conflating the law and the gospel, but it's a law that's infused with these leftist kind of um, priorities, uh, egalitarian priorities. And so you're not really a Christian unless you are fulfilling the law in some way, if you're keeping the law. So that's how he could say things like, uh, along with James Cone, by the way, that, uh, you know, the, the religion of the slaves was superior to the religion of the masters. In fact, uh, we don't even know if they were Christians, or I think in one case they weren't Christians. He, he actually accuses them of, uh, Walter Strickland does, of having a half gospel. So if you ever uh, were involved in that, to any extent, you have a half gospel. And so, of course, um, it, it goes without saying that slavery is not desirable, that the kind of slavery we had here had many um, problems that were uh, not in keeping with what the Bible says a slave, slavery should be regulated by and so forth and so on. It was, it was not a good re labor relationship, or at least not an ideal one. Um, but that's not the issue. The issue is, can someone take it back to Roman slavery, which was much worse, can someone in that context much worse in, in, in many ways, at least. I mean, they didn't have gladiatorial arenas in Mississippi. Um, Roman slavery had had some pretty wicked things attached to it. But, but could someone in that despicable, let's say, system operate in a way that glorified God as a Christian? And the answer, of course, is yes, because if the answer was no, we'd have to throw out parts of the New Testament. We'd have to throw out both Paul's teachings and Jesus's teachings on this. So again, the podcast isn't about slavery either. I'm getting into all these controversial weeds, aren't I, at the beginning? But I kind of need to wade through this to get to, I think, the main point here. Um, the, the main point is that the inadequate critique was making the gospel contingent on some kind of a social view or a social work of some kind. And, and if you weren't participating in that, then you weren't a Christian. And of course, this is foreign to the New Testament. It's foreign to church history. Uh, the gospel is the good news that uh, of what Christ has done on our behalf. It's not the good news that we can somehow follow the law. That's not what the gospel is. Is there fruit from the gospel that is in keeping with following the law? Sure, there is. Is it going to affect the way that you engage in even things like Walter Strickland likes to talk about slavery? Yeah, of course it is. You're, you're going to be a master who, uh, if you're already in that situation, who is going to follow God's law. Maybe you'll uh, if it's in the, the context of um, the American slavery, which is what Walter Strickland talks about, uh, maybe you, you'll consider ways uh, to possibly free your slaves if that's economically good for them and for you and, um, and, and can be um, helpful and, and so forth. And, and so you're going to find ways to love your neighbors, and, and that's going to mean the people that are under your charge in a labor relationship as well. So that's the fruit of the gospel. That's not the gospel. So anyway, we all know this, I think, for the most part. That's a review. But that was the extent of the critique that I saw in many, we'll say, Reformed ministries. Uh, it's not the gospel, and the church should only be about the gospel. And, and this was something mocked by the woke left. Uh, they looked at this and just said, you have an inadequate gospel. Your gospel can't address social issues. Uh, because, uh, and, and that was the assumption, was the gospel needs to address social issues. Um, of course, there's a category called Christian ethics, Christian obedience, the third use of the law in which Christians do engage in 
social issues, uh, among other moral issues. And so it's not for the gospel to necessarily do those things. Gospel changes hearts and it makes you want to follow uh, the, the moral law. It, it creates a, a, a new relationship with Christ. And so you're not running from the policeman anymore because you're afraid you're going to get caught. You're not suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. You're embracing the truth. And you, you have no fear of God because Christ Jesus has taken that penalty. And so uh, you then, as a redeemed person, are going to fulfill the law. Uh, and Jesus said, if you love me, you keep my commandments. It doesn't mean perfection. It means uh, direction. So you're, you're going ever upward. That's sanctification. That's These are just Christian understandings. Um, but one of the issues, I, I, I think, was that we never fully, at least many reform ministries, never fully went to the extent they should have. They didn't cut off the social justice stuff as the root. They didn't identify in this egalitarian impulse that it has for uh, this leveling kind of equality in society, this elimination of disparities and so forth. They didn't they didn't go after that as a very aggressively. Some did, um, but many didn't. The, the end of their critique was just it's the it, it's against the gospel. Uh, at least that's the emphasis that I saw. And so um, you also had many in, in the same camp that I'm talking about or camps making statements like race is a social construct. Right. They would say all these things uh, that led you to believe that they actually did perhaps support some kind of a, a version of maybe egalitarianism somewhere. Uh, so so they would um, you know, they would want uh, equality of opportunity, right, not equality of outcome. But that equality of opportunity, um, you know, might necessarily mean that uh, in, in a given nation state that uh, those people must be welcoming to uh, migrants, irrespective of where they come from, who they are. Uh, there was a certain like a, a, an unbeddedness about it. Uh, there, there was a certain mentality. By the way, we're dealing with this now <laughs> in, in France, not we, but French people. I, I remember back in what was it, 2015 or 16, when there was that big migrant crisis. And I remember all these Christian leaders in the reformed world coming out and saying how it's terrible that uh, the uh, nations of Europe, some of them were not as welcoming as they should be. And of course, the problem was they were their doors were swung too wide open. And now France is dealing with some of that. Um, but anyway, that was, I think, the inadequacy of some of the reformed uh, critiques, reformed leaning critiques, is they wanted to keep things in that soteriology. They only could think about how it affected the church. And because the church is this eternal community of every tribe, tongue, and nation, uh, and th that fit well, I think, in, in the minds of some of these people. I, I don't think it does, but I think in the minds of some, that fit well with critical race theory's view that race is just a social construct. And they, they, the church transcends this. And so um, we have the unity, we have the equality, we have all of the, all of the stuff that the social justice warriors are looking for, you can find, but you can, only, you can find it in the gospel. You can find when you, when you come to church, that's where you can find it. And the answers to our social dilemmas are expand the reach of the church, okay? Hopefully th this is striking a bell, uh, stri striking a nerve with, with some of you or, or ringing a bell that you can uh, remember back to 2020 and hearing some of this stuff. Um, and, and there is some truth in some of this. There is a sense in which the woke are looking for this utopia on earth. And there is a sense in which, uh, of course, we don't have a utopia on earth, but Christians believe in heaven. And, and so there's this, um, this final state in which all the wrongs are going to be made right. Of course, we can't get there through human effort in this life, though. That's that's part of the problem with social justice. But they're not, but the vision of social justice and the vision of, of heaven are not the same. There's hierarchy in heaven. Um, in fact, you retain some of your uh, identities that you have in the earthly realm in heaven. I don't know how it all works. Of course, marriage isn't there. Ma marriage is uh, apparently more of a temporary institution than the uh, tongue, tribe, and nation that you have, which is interesting to me. At least it would seem that way. Uh, so there are these things that we um, we that that are beautiful, and that's the thing that drives me nuts a little. And, and make it just that there's these things that are absolutely beautiful that God has wired into this world. Uh, differences between people who live in different places and, and have different habits and ways of living, and and they're amazing. That's why we like to travel. That's why we like different cuisine. That's why some nights I'd rather go to the Mexican restaurant than the than the, you know. And it's not just the food; it's the it, it's I, I want to be in that environment. Um, and, and I'm someone who loves Mexican food. I mean, maybe it's something about being originally from Southern California. I don't know. Um, but this is 
this is part of the beauty. Uh, this is true diversity, right? And God, of course, uh, created this. He uh, divided the peoples of Babel. Uh, Acts 17 talks about uh, the, the divisions that God has created. Of course, those things can move around those boundaries. But but there is this basic understanding that God intended for people to spread out and to form uh, these various um, communities. And, and whether or not that's a result of the fall or before, before the fall doesn't really matter for our discussion. Uh, some would contend. In fact, Dr. Russell Fuller contends. I, I remember recently him saying something about this that actually the idea of nations uh, was a pre-fall idea. This isn't the result of sin. This is something that God had as part of his design. Okay, John, when are you going to talk about ecclesiocentric uh, churches? Well, here's where it comes in. That inadequate critique is just a, I believe, a symptom. Okay, I'm known as the social justice guy to some. And whether that's true or not, that's how many of you know me. Um, I want to talk about something broader than that today. This isn't about social justice, but in order to get there, I wanted to take you down the path that, that I felt was uh, a, a bit of review and perhaps um, prepared the way for what I'm about to say. There are churches, I believe, and I noticed this in the Reformed world um, through, through even some firsthand experience, that seem to have a very... Um, I would say insular mentality. They, they view themselves as separate from everything else, not just in society, but the universal body of Christ even and the other churches in their town and any other institution that might exist in their town. They are, their church is separate from all that. And in a certain sense, churches are, they have your local church. And of course, every organization has its differences, but it, it, I'm talking about it's it's to such an extent that, well, let me take you through the list. Here are the 10 signs that your church is ecclesiocentric. The 10 signs that your church is ecclesiocentric. I'm going to go through these with you. Number one, there are social consequences for not getting approval from church leaders on major life decisions, such as dating, marriage, job placement, and moving. All right. This isn't I'm not talking about a cult here, by the way. And this, this is, I think, what some might think is that you're talking about a cult. I'm not talking about a cult. I'm talking about a uh, you could say this is maybe a pre-cult. I don't know. <laughs> maybe like this is a church that could go towards a cult. Or it's on the spectrum or something. But I, I wouldn't call it a cult yet. I, I think it's just an imbalance. Um, and by the way, there are other imbalances I'll talk about at the end of this list. But but that's number one. And, and I have there's many stories I have of people who in churches like this, uh, were told who they could uh, date. Um, I mean, specifically, not just a category of here's advice, date a Christian, uh, date someone who's uh, compatible with you in various ways. No, like this person you must date and this or this person uh, you cannot date. Um, uh, other life decisions like moving, the church must approve or the assumption is it might be an unwritten rule. The church should approve uh, moving that that's one of the signs that you might be an ecclesiocentric church. It's, it's a place where the leaders there really take their job seriously, but it's, it's so serious and it, it, it's, it's not even seriously wouldn't be the word. It's actually, um, they, they, they almost see themselves as dictators. They go beyond their role of advising in these matters to being dictatorial and saying, you must submit. All right. Now, any authority structure can have this, right? Uh, you can have labor relationships like this. You can have uh, husband-wife relationships, child-parent relationships. Of course, uh, parents seem to have, they have more leeway with their children, but um, th there's a responsibility suited to all these different roles. Uh, number two, it is assumed that most life activities outside of work should directly benefit the church. So if you're not uh, at work making a living so you can give to the church, you should probably be at the church, right? That's an assumption that you shouldn't really be involved in other things uh, your time is is best spent at church, so why wouldn't why not be there? And of course, I, I hope that you are at your church a lot. I'm at my church a lot, but um, the assumption that that's just the way that you should live—you should emancipate yourself, separate yourself from all these other arenas in order to to just be at church—that that's not correct. Uh, number three, a pressure exists to substitute voluntary membership outside the church for ones inside uh, the church. So if you were 
saved, let's say, and you were part of a bowling league or a knitting club or, you know, some other civic organization, let's say you were part of uh, a veterans group or something. Uh, there's a pressure now perhaps to substitute those relationships, those memberships, to see those as worldly in some way. And, and certainly uh, not as important beneath the importance of being at church for Bible study or, or whatever. And of course, there is there's spiritual life and significance to being at church that those other organizations cannot offer. That's true. But where are you going to witness? Where are you going to form relationships with other people so that you can share the gospel with them? Right. Um, and, and not that's not even the, the only reason to be part of those organizations. I mean, some of these are just enjoying the good gifts that God has given and uh, building community strength and um, and leadership and learning leadership skills and uh, being involved in sports can can really hone that kind of thing. And it's it, in ways that you may not be able to mature even in church settings, to, to be honest with you. Uh, it's one of the problems that I've seen with people who go straight from uh, seminary to a church and they maybe they've been through Bible school. They've never actually worked a real job. They have a problem in this area. I would say work for a while, work for a few years at least, uh, get some experience under your belt, uh, learn how get outside the bubble, learn how people who aren't saved think, learn to interact with them. And, and then you're going to be a better pastor, uh, in my opinion. Um, leaders are fatigued from the pressure of creating and maintaining extensive activities designed to place people's lives under church influence. Leaders are fatigued from the pressure of creating and maintaining extensive activities designed to place people people's lives under church influence. So if there's a Boy Scout group, let's say now Boy Scouts isn't the best <laughs> best organization to use at this point. Let's let's use a different one. Let's use Trail Life. I was in Boy Scouts. So uh, when it was still Boy Scouts and not just uh, any gender scouts. Um, so, so let's say Trail Life. You're involved in Trail Life or something like that, which I think actually has a Christian veneer to it, if I'm not mistaken. But um, the, the attitude would be at a church that's ecclesiocentric, uh, we need to take those activities that you're doing out there and we need to have those, uh, run those through the church. It's gotta be pushed through this kind of this channel that's ecclesiastic, uh, in order for it to be legitimate, uh, in order for it, it to not to, to, I don't know, to, to redeem it somehow. And so, um, so what happens is, uh, these ministries are created uh, to be alternatives to everything that the world could possibly have. And when you do that, it, it's just not possible in most churches. You don't have the bandwidth. You don't have the, um, the, the support to be able to run all that. And so you have a few people who are burnt out trying to keep up with programs when honestly, that I mean, it's just beyond what you see in the New Testament. Uh, yeah, people, in, especially in Acts, they were at church every day. But it wasn't that it wasn't like an official program that um, it, it was organic is what I'm trying to say. There was a lot more organic and uh, organic natures to it. And uh, on Sunday morning, obviously, that's planned and so forth. But can you imagine uh, doing that every day uh, with the same staff that you currently have at church? It, it just doesn't work. And so there, there is this scale problem to trying to reimagine and then recreate all these alternatives to. Uh, what's out there. I mean, wh why not go to your trail life group and just influence it for Christ? Why not have a, a Christian trail life group? <laughs> why, you know, why, why does it have to be under the banner of the church? Right. Um, and, and these are tendencies. Again, these are not all hard and fast rules. These are just tendencies for you to evaluate. Uh, leaders emphasize loyalty to their particular church over other social institutions, including the universal church. So, um, you often see this with churches that have brands. They, they might even have brand logos. Not that that's wrong, uh, but they, and you hear a lot of talk in these churches about our church. You don't hear uh, a, a talk about other things um, like the universal body of Christ as much. In fact, maybe there's even a jealousy if you leave that church to go somewhere else uh, that, that could uh, promote gossip, that could promote uh, them coming up with some kind of a reason because they feel slighted that you left, that uh, they can still feel superior and that you are the problem and not them. Um, there, there's a loyalty that's expected at these ecclesiocentric churches, and you should be loyal to your church, right? There's some truth in all of this. But it doesn't mean um, that you you forego um, your relationships and your allegiances to other things, to other, so, and it's certainly not the universal church. If you can serve the universal church better somewhere else, then that's great. Uh, maybe you should leave, right? Maybe, and your pastor should, if it's a good fit, it should be supporting that. Uh, if it's a non-Christian institution, um, you may have allegiance to that as well. 
uh, your, your family is an institution, right? Is everyone in the family a Christian? Maybe not. So, so you should have a loyalty there as well. And that's an important thing that we, we find in scripture responsibilities are attached to. Okay. Uh, number six decisions are made on the basis of whether or not the church's image will be helped or harmed. Okay. So this is, uh, when the leadership gets together and they're thinking through how to solve a problem or let's say there's a sin issue or something and they're thinking, wow, if this gets out there, we're going to be in trouble here. People are going to know people are going to see. And then what will they think of us? Uh, we saw a lot of this in COVID. How many churches gave the reason? What would our neighbors think if they saw us meeting or something like that? Uh, very much caring about their, uh, their, the opinion that others have of them in the community, their reputation. And, um, and so this is how they make decisions. We're going to cover up sin sometimes even because we don't want to make the church look bad. And, and it becomes the institution becomes more important than the truth and, and even the well-being of the individual people at the church. And that's dangerous when that because the, the shepherds, as we'll see in a moment, are supposed to watch over souls of people. Uh, they're, they're not supposed to be watching over the reputation of the church. Um, not, not that they shouldn't care about the church's reputation, but it's it, it, it's it, the primary concern should be the people in the church. That's what the church is, right? Not, not as an institution, but as uh, a, a, an earthly institution, a local church, a local brand, especially, but as the actual people that attend the, the building that, that this is located in uh, the actual people that fellowship and the Holy spirit works through. Those are the people that should be the priority. And if, if something else becomes the priority, uh, then, then that that's a problem. That's, that's a problem. Okay, number seven, keeping people in the church is more important than personal or kingdom interests that would prompt them to move. All right, so if you had an opportunity, let's say, across the country or across town to go use your gifts and you could use them better at that particular church and the doctrine, let's say, was the same, all other things being equal, fellowship would have been the same, um, that, that should be a good thing. In fact, the leaders of your church should be happy for you with that. that it made it sad to see you go, but hey, we're glad that you can be serving the Lord somewhere else, because that's the goal. Yet many pastors are very suspicious of this. They think they're the only church. If you leave their church, you, you must be compromised. Uh, it, it's not a good idea to get, to leave because who knows what's out there, right? You, there's, this is the safe haven where there's correct doctrine or something like that. Uh, and, and, and that's very dangerous. Uh, the, God has his church all over the place. Um, and if you start getting, the, and this is the kind of thing that actually does lead to a cult when you start thinking you're the only ones. You may be a remnant. You may be small, but you're not the only ones. Um, number eight, church leaders frequently highlight their authority. This is another hallmark of an ecclesiocentric church. The, the, the church uh, becomes the substitute for other institutions. And so the, the people who run the church end up taking the position of um, usurping the position, sometimes even of fathers, of uh, political, well, I don't know if political leaders as much, but uh, they, they tend to ignore politics more in ecclesiocentric churches. It just doesn't matter, which is thus why they had an inadequate critique of social justice. It just didn't factor in. Um, so so they, they see what they're doing as the most important thing. The, the only thing to be concerned about and, and those who are in charge of that thing, the leaders, elders, whatever they're called in your church, uh, if you go to an ecclesiocentric church, they're the ones um, that, uh, are, they're almost like the priests coming down on high with the truth and their authority may not be questioned. Uh, number nine, a social wall exists between church leaders and members. A social wall exists between church leaders and members. So you, how would you know whether or not your pastor or pastors are qualified if you don't know them, if you're not in their homes, if they're not in your home, if you're not fellowshipping with them, how would you know? Uh, you wouldn't. And that's the problem with ecclesiocentric churches. Oftentimes, there's a great barrier placed there. Uh, they don't, the leaders in these churches might fellowship with themselves, but they don't tend to fellowship as much with their own sheep. And if they do, it's from a position of superiority. It's in a context where they're in charge. They, they don't tend, they're not going to go fishing with you. Uh, uh, maybe there's a few people in the church, maybe, maybe the high givers or something, you know, they'll go, go fishing with them, but they're not going to uh, naturally, uh, gravitate towards people who are the sheep the one and, and and that it should be the opposite in a way actually the leaders should be yeah they can fellowship with each other they need the encouragement and support but they their responsibility is to the flock to the sheep number 10 excuses or course corrections instead of repentance is given in the event of leadership mistakes so if some if, if the leadership does something wrong if they make a, a mistake the financial indiscretion uh the, someone's committed a moral failure uh, in leadership 
um, instead of repenting, let's say, uh, instead of um, uh, going public with it and saying, we, we goofed, uh, here's what we did. We're accountable to you. Uh, and we're obviously accountable to the Lord, but uh, it, it's the congregation. Where even if you're in an elder-led or elder-run uh, church, um, you still have these qualifications that the congregation needs to be able to assess. And so uh, if you're in a church that's ecclesiocentric, you're going to be shielded from that. You're not going to be able to assess because there's going to be course corrections. There's going to be, w without admitting that they were wrong, they'll just correct course. Or uh, they'll just make an excuse for why something wrong happened. So these are the signs, the 10 signs your church is ecclesiocentric. Now, I want to talk about some uh, Bible verses and just, just some, some quotes here uh, from John Calvin and John MacArthur. But some of the relevant Bible passages, these are more about the authority. Um, I thought about putting some on the mission of the church as well. I think that's pretty straightforward for most of us. The mission of the church, of course, uh, is the Great Commission to make disciples. And of course, this happens through the building up of the church, through various spiritual gifts, as we find in, in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter, um, uh, I guess, 12, 13, 14, uh, we find this uh, this model given. And, and everyone has a different gift in the church. They work together for the building up of the entire body, right? That's that's how it works. And, and this is supposed to uh, encourage maturity. And uh, th this is making ready the bride of Christ. I mean, this, the church is this eternal institution. So that, that's what it exists for. And it's uh, it's fundamentally different than the institutions that are temporal in nature uh, that exist on this earth. Uh, there is something special about the church. Um, someone asked me if I believed, uh, actually, there's, there's an article um, on Theopolis. If I was using their, I should probably mention this. I meant to mention this at the beginning, but they have an article called The Ecclesiocentric Alternative to National Conservatism. And it's long. Uh, basically, the long and short of it is that the, the article's point is, uh, uh, let me read for you this sentence here. Um, see if I can find it. The Christian professes that the church is his first family. The church is his first nation or ethnos, and the church is his first state or polis. Social reality and political reality are, for the Christian, fundamentally ecclesiocentric. From this, with the lessons detailed above, the Christian derives a distinctly and exclusively Christian understanding of what to aspire to in and through the nation states of this world in, in this age. So th there, there may be a mixture of things going on in this article. It's not exactly what I'm talking about, but there may be some overlap. Um, with uh, in, in this case, it seems like um, these temporary, uh, te temporary or temporal world uh, relationships should not be the end that a society is built around. So family should not be, I guess family is not the building block. It's, it's the church. Um, I mean, that's kind of what I'm getting from this article, but the, uh, I disagree, I think with, with that, but, um, but the idea that, uh, the church needs to think Christians need to think ecclesiocentric centrically about even politics, uh, that, that would be, I, I suppose, in keeping with what I'm saying here. Um, so, so no, I did not get my definition from Theopolis. I didn't even know that they were using this term. Um, I mean something that a little more specific and, and different. So my mind is unique from theirs, uh, but there might be some overlap anyway. So here's, here, here's some of the, uh, passages on leadership and, and, uh, oftentimes, uh, you'll find out whether or not you're an ecclesiocentric church when you try to humbly, humbly, okay. needs to be humble. You approach leadership. Uh, a lot of people found this out during 2020. You humbly approach about an issue that is, let's say, blatantly anti-biblical, and you hit a brick wall. That's when you know that something's wrong. Uh, there should be a receptivity. Even if there's a disagreement, there should be a receptivity and, and a willingness to be corrected if someone, if you're not seeing something. That, that's actually the fundamental to a Christian spirit is this uh, willingness to, hey, if I'm wrong, I want to know it, and I want an opportunity to repent. Uh, and so, um, first Timothy three, four says, uh, he must be one who manages his own household. Well, this meaning elders keeping his children under control of dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? So this is used sometimes to justify, Hey, I'm here to take care of the church. If you're a member of the church, I'm here to take care of you. Now I, I have to, or manage you, I guess I, I have to point this out in Hebrews or rather in first Timothy chapter three, verse 12. So the same chapter deacons, right? are told the same thing. They're supposed to be good managers of their children in their own households. Um, they're, they're, it's similar, at least. Maybe not exactly the same, but it is very similar. Uh, deacons need to be good managers. They need to be responsible, same as elders. Why? 
Well, it's because when they get into an office where they have responsibility, uh, how are they going to fulfill that responsibility? If they don't already uh, have a proven track record of fulfilling that responsibility, it'd be foolhardy to put someone in a position of CEO of a company when they haven't demonstrated any other leadership skills, right? Same thing in a church. It'd just be foolish to put someone in charge of something when they uh, aren't managing the very things that God has already placed under their charge. Now, this doesn't mean that in a company, when you have someone who you work for, they control every aspect of your life. Um, even slaves <laughs> cannot have, uh, it's impossible. This is one, a very common Christian teaching concerning slavery that um, even slaves have a conscience that is outside the domain of, uh, you can't force, let's say, uh, them to believe a certain thing or confess a certain thing. In fact, that's a violation of con conscience if you try to do such a thing. And so th there is no ultimate dictatorial authority that an employer has over an employee. Um, it's the same in the church. There's, there's a lane that the church runs in. Uh, Hebrews 13, 17 says, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. So uh, submit to them, right? So, so we should submit to our leaders, but we're also told what? To submit to government. Children are to submit to their parents. Wives are to submit to their husbands. Does that mean in every circumstance that is a blank check that you must do whatever the pastor says? No, it, it, that's not what that means. Um, it, it means that you, you're supposed to be obedient to God and pastors, just like these other um, uh, authorities, have delegated power. They, they, they have power that God has granted them in order to uh, to, to manage uh, your lives in certain aspects, though, of your lives. And it's in this case, it's what it concerns uh, your souls, your souls as those who will give an account. So, uh, of course, your soul affects a lot of things. Your soul is very important. It's pretty intrinsic. Um, but your soul is, a, is also a very specific thing, right? It's that immaterial part of you. Um, this doesn't get into the um, this doesn't mean the pastor should be involved, let's say, intimately in every single decision you make in, in a business. That you need to call your pastor every time. Now, if you have a moral dilemma, call your pastor. Uh, why? Because your soul is on the line. Your soul is is grieved over or over something. Um, and uh, this this is a time if you're confused, your pastor can give guidance. But that's a different kind of authority. That's that's not the authority. That's not dictatorial authority. That's the kind of authority that comes with uh, with in a circumstance like that, coaching or or giving advice. Um, of course, there are matters in which we see specifically pastors do have. Uh, authority that is uh, to, to keep watch over the, the church of God uh, from the wolves uh, that would threaten the church of God. They have almost, and, and maybe I'm comfortable saying, an absolute authority to uh, drive out the wolves, um, to, uh, to, to ensure that they're not going to maul the sheep because that's their mission is the sheep. They're watching over the souls of the sheep. This is what gives them um, authority. Well, John Calvin said about this. Now you think about John Calvin, Martin Luther, the reformers, they lived during a time when let's just say the official church, the Roman Catholic church had abused some authority and love to use verses like Hebrews 13, 17 to say, uh, you have to submit in every case. And John Calvin said in order, therefore, that the Pope and those who belong to him may derive support from this passage, we must all of necessity, first prove that they are of number of those who watch for our salvation. If this be made evident, there will, will then be no question but that they ought to be reverently treated by all the godly. So in other words, there's a qualification here. Um, you got to keep watch over the souls. Like that's the job, right? Just like governments, you're supposed to be God's deacon, God's servant to, to do what? To execute wrath on the evildoers. So if you're not doing that, then what are you? You, you've abrogated your authority when you start stepping outside of that. And that's the point here that John Calvin's making. He says, look, um, there's no question you should submit to the ecclesiastical authority, but just know that there's a lane that they're in. They must first prove that they are of the number of those who watch for our salvation. And that's how he took the, the watching over your soul. That This is things that would jeopardize your salvation, things that would jeopardize um, your, your spiritual health in, in a very drastic way. Uh, John MacArthur, I thought, had a good quote I wanted to put in here as well. He says, if Jesus, the sinless and perfect son of God, limited himself to speaking nothing during his incarnation except the truth he received from his father, how much more should those who have been called into his ministry speak only on the authority of divine scripture?
And if that's the role of the shepherd in a church uh, to um, execute the office of the pastor, keep watch over the souls of the flock, uh, disciple those under his charge, uh, to do so uh, under the authority of God, knowing that, as Peter says, uh, they are under shepherds of the chief shepherd, then they are limited to the directions given by the chief shepherd. They can't step outside of that and start making up their own rules and saying that, well, because of my position, you must do what I say here, here, and here. Uh, it has to flow from the commands that God has already placed down. Um, and so, you know, this is, um, it, it, this is part of what I see in the broader Reformed evangelical world. I'm not saying it's, it, it's the majority of churches in that world. I'm not even saying it's a plurality. I'm not exactly sure. But it is a tendency that I have seen um, especially churches that are very concerned about uh, making sure that that role of pastor or elder is respected. And, and they've, of course, when, when we all get, um, when we all understand that something is correct and that there is a role for an elder and that it is proper to have authority, it can be easy once you are being introduced to this truth for the first time to go cage stage, to, to, to get uh, really hyper uh, about that, right? You're just all about that. And that's the thing that solves everything. And you become ideological, like every church, if they just had this, it would be great. Uh, and, and everything would go smoothly. And it's like, no, it's the hearts of men that are going to, no matter what structure is set up. Uh, can, can, in fact, I've seen congregational churches uh, that seem to function quite well because everyone there is, is pretty humble and they just respect and follow their leaders. And so um, is it exactly, I think what the Bible teaches on the subject? No, but it's, but they're functioning in such a way, my dad used to say this, that the leader's the one who leads. They're functioning in such a way as the leaders lead and the sheep follow. And they know that they're loved. That's one of the things too about, um, do, do your pastors love you as the sheep in your church more than they love the church you know, building and the church brand and the church reputation in the community? That, that's a good big test, I would say. Um, and so th this isn't to get down on any particular church. I don't want really anyone using it. I was kind of reluctant to do this because I didn't want anyone using this to as an excuse to leave a church because, uh, you know, John said that if they exert any kind of authority that uh, we're done. And no, I'm not saying that they have authority. Uh, I'm just saying that, though, there is this off kilter imbalance that can lead to some pretty bad things, covering up sin, uh, leaders who aren't actually qualified in those positions. Sometimes they're not even saved. Uh there's just all kinds of problems that come with this. And I just think one area that it came out, this is the route I took to understand this a little bit, is seeing what happened in 2020, just seeing how many churches reacted and um, how pastors were just, they, they course corrected. They were unwilling to admit that they had been wrong, whether that was closing the church down or partnering with BLM in some way. They, they, they had to somehow um, try to navigate the choppy waters that they were in by securing the, the church brand, by making sure that those who were of different political persuasions uh, were, were happy there. And, and those who decided to critique social justice, again, did, did it in this very reductionistic way where uh, it, they didn't go after the actual metaphysics and the ethics of social justice so much as they did the soteriology, which is fine. But they, they, they conceived of, you know, you can have your social justice out there if you want. If you want to do a political thing, many of them thought, do a political thing. Just don't bring it in here. And, and don't we don't want it dividing our body up. We don't we, we want peace. Uh, and, and some of them even adopted a little bit of social justice just to, to try to have that peace. But um, th there is this way, I, I think, of trying to appeal to the activists uh, by saying that we have what you want, but it's got to be done through the church, through, you know, let, let's uh, let, let's take that and put it into our church. Let, let's um, harness that energy for what we're building over here. Uh, and, and, and so, you know, you saw the, the more on, on the scale of woke, you saw the more woke churches, woke leaning churches, I would say the ones that wouldn't go as far as let's say transgenderism is, is okay. They would be against that, but they, they were on board with BLM and so forth. They wanted to make the point gospel coalition types. They wanted to make the point that, man, if you want to be a real activist, you'll do it. You'll do it through us. You'll do it through Christianity. You'll do it through the church. That's the real radical community that you need to be part of. And of course, this is only an off-ramp from the church. Young activists see through it. It doesn't take long, and they realize, oh, well, we can maybe use these resources that have been uh, stored up here for maybe even decades from generous donors, sometimes centuries. Uh, we, we have a lot of resources here. That's what they're doing in the PCUSA. We have all these resources. Let's use them for our political project. 
let's ransack uh, this place. Um, but they aren't foolish enough to think that uh, they, they they don't think that the benefiting the church is the end goal here. They're using the church to benefit something else. And if they can be more effective activists outside the church, they'll do it. They'll leave the church. This has happened a lot of times. So, um, so anyway, that's, that's the podcast today. That's, I just wanted to throw that out there. Um, there might be some of you who are in churches like this and, uh, you know, maybe this description is ringing bells for you and helping you understand, uh, something that you've been in. Um, I will say this, there are other imbalances out there. I didn't prepare this podcast to talk about them, but there are other podcasts or, or imbalances. You could have, uh, family centered churches, honestly. And I've, I've seen this where you have a church that. Um, I, I think the danger actually in some of the um, family integrated churches, and I'm sure I have listeners who are in that, but I think the danger in those churches is you could get this way if you're not careful, uh, because you end up making the father is, is the priest of the home and the father ends up uh, being, you know, some churches will even have them uh, all the, the heads of the households all pray. So I don't know what the single people feel kind of left out at that point, but uh, that's what they do. And, and it's just, they really, um, they put such on a high pedestal having kids and having and having families uh, that that becomes what Christianity is. And it's all about family values. It's all a lot of these churches end up being, you know, very active in the pro-life stuff, which is great, or abolition stuff, which is, which, you know, great. Get involved in that. Um, but but it, there can be imbalances with that. There, you, you can have an imbalance where that's the church serves that purpose. It's not about making disciples so much as it is having kids and making families. Right. Um so, so everything in balance, uh, you could have a church, I suppose that, uh, is imbalanced in other ways that, that actually is a truly activist church and, and sees, uh, government redistribution schemes and so forth. I mean, these are the really radical left so-called churches, uh, as the, you know, that's what life is about. That's what the church should, should be about. And, and, and of course that's, that's all wrong as well. But, um, but the church as an institution, uh, exists for the purpose of, making disciples. Disciples of Jesus Christ will be mature, uh, preparing the bride of Christ for the day the groom comes, Jesus Christ himself. And, and that's what the church exists there for. And there's a hierarchy in the church uh, that sets in motion uh, this kind of a goal and, and how to complete it. And, and it operates accordingly. Uh, it is not an institution that exists to be the McDonald's in a sea of other chains of Burger Kings and Wendy's. And so, you know, other competitors that are just about the same, but uh, where we have our brand and where it, it, that's not what the church is there for. It's not to just get a bunch of people in a room to have a social service where everyone's coming together and, uh, and fellowshipping. I hope they do, but that's not the, the ultimate goal uh, of the church. And so, um, if you're in an ecclesiocentric church, if you're in a church that, that is off on these things, if you're in a church that is uh, so insular, uh, in a bubble, um, has, uh, author authoritarian issues with the leaders, yeah, you may want to think about this. You may want to maybe even send this podcast. I mean, it might not make, make if, if you're at a church like that, your, your elders will not appreciate this podcast most likely, but um, Hey, you could send this podcast if you want or, or take the, the list and just maybe go over it and uh, talk about it. So um, hope this was helpful for you all uh, going through some of the comments. Now uh, there are a bunch of them. <laughs> Someone asked 10 marks. No, no, I'm not coming up with 10 marks of a guy. Uh, I think someone already did nine marks and, and that was enough. Um, <laughs> thank you, uh, Kuyana. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing your name right. You're, you're very pleasant. I appreciate your encouraging uh, remarks on YouTube. Uh, Kuyana Shaw says, uh, just be, embrace all the names that they call you. I learned to do that a long time ago. It's made life so much easier. Yeah, I'm coming to that point. It's hard sometimes. I'm, you know, you get called something that you're not. It's like you, you want to defend yourself sometimes or you want to set the record straight. And, you, you know, I just have to realize a lot of the people who do that, they're not after truth. They do not care about truth. <laughs> they are, they're literally throwing something to the wall, hoping it sticks. So if they throw a slur, if they, if they call you a kinist or a racist or a sexist or whatever, it, what they're trying to do is, is find the weak spot in the armor because they want to take you down. Uh, it's not about pursuing truth. It's not about reason. Uh, it's, it's this wide eyed ideological approach. Um, Let's see, uh, man, lots of comments. Uh, John, uh, you should really listen to Brent um, McCatty. I think that's how you pronounce the name. Defense of Kinism on his blog. Defense of Kinism. Okay, I mean, I don't know what Brent uh, McCatty thinks of. I, it's just, it's not, I, I hate to say this, guys. I, I do. 
I know some people care about this. I've, I've never been that interested in it. It's never, I, I just haven't. I've never thought it was that interesting. I've just, I don't know. That's just, uh, I, it, it's something, it, it's like eschatology for me. Like I'll, I have to force myself to watch eschatology videos or just to study eschatology. I tried to do the book thing and I'm like, I can't read these books. I need interesting videos. I mean, most things I don't, but for this, I don't know. And eschatology is, is interesting, right? And it's important, but it's one of those things. Like, I just, I don't know. I'm just not, maybe it's uh, my latent uh, autism or something <laughs> where, you know, I can only, uh, I can only focus on certain things that I'm interested in. Who knows? Um, okay. So uh, let's see what other Anita Smith says uh, churches that stayed open during COVID-19 were open in obedience to God before civil authorities couldn't agree more. Um, oh, John Toby says that my font is too fine print for me to, so people couldn't read my font on this particular video. You know, I'm just going to have to make this available. I'm going to put a link in the info section. If you are interested, you can check it out. Uh, and in that way, uh, you'll be able to read it all. So if you want to download those 10 reasons, go to the info section. Uh, I'll put it up there in a few minutes. Um, Reformation Church of Shelbyville. Our pastors are purposely bivocational. We feel this is a beneficial and God-honoring model. Wow, that's interesting. That's an interesting thought. And I think there is an advantage to that. If your pastors are bivocational, if they have uh, a secular job as well, or they're they're in the world, they're interacting with, with other people, they don't get that bubble kind of insular mentality. Uh, I think that's actually perhaps wise. I don't, I don't think, I'm not legalistic about it, but uh, there's a wisdom to that. Uh, Okay. I think that's about it for the podcast. There are a lot of other uh, comments. Oh, just one more. Robert Sparkman. He's one of the patrons. He says, John, a lot of the traits you described in regards to churches apply to the cult I was part of as a young man. Yeah, that's what I said. I think it, it might be the road that leads to a cult. Exclusiveness appeals to vanity. Yep. There's almost like a Gnostic appeal there. And, and I'm not, I'm using Gnostic very loosely and probably shouldn't have even used that word. Uh, it, but there is this like, kind of like, we have the truth thing and we like that we like we have the truth uh in our little group you have to have this initiation ceremony before you can be in our group to know the truth god can't just communicate with you directly through his revelation um so all right um <laughs> yeah font gate uh part two yeah font <laughs> right yeah the font uh font fonts are a very controversial thing right now in evangelicalism for some odd reason all right. Well, that's the podcast. God bless everyone. More coming later on. Bye now. Ready for a career in behavioral health? Earn your online degree at Herzing University. Choose from health and human services, psychology, or social work programs. Gain the skills to work, coordinate, and manage nonprofits. Secure a bachelor's in psychology to study mental health or advance your social work career through our online master's of social work. Let us help you become a social change agent. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Text HEALTH to 85109. That's HEALTH to 85109. Or visit herzing.edu. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.